0: This is the Beyond the Studio podcast. I'm Amanda Adams. And I'm Nicole Muller. And we're here to help you figure out the business of being an artist. Here we'll have honest conversations with artists, makers, and business experts, and dive deep into the work that happens beyond the studio. If you find value in listening to these conversations, please consider leaving us a rating and review or sharing some of your favorite episodes with your creative community. It's the easiest way to show us some love and help others find the podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Since this podcast is hosted by two young adults, there's a possibility of some adult language. So if there are sensitive ears around you, be sure to pop in some headphones before you listen. If you're a regular listener of the podcast, I'm sure you're no stranger to the fact that we break outside of our seasonal format pretty regularly. And this week is no exception. Today, we're bringing you a special episode in collaboration with Meow Wolf.
1: All right, on today's episode of Beyond the Studio, we are really excited to be speaking with Katie Kennedy. Uh, who is an artist, uh, creative director, and one of the co-founders of Meow Wolf. Um, First of all, Katie, welcome to Beyond the Studio.
2: Hello. Thank you.
1: You don't know this, but it has actually been a dream of ours uh, since we started the podcast a couple of years ago um, to talk with Meow Wolf, so we are really excited to be interviewing you today for... um, I get to fulfill a dream! (laughs) A dream fulfilled. Yes. (laughs) Uh, For those of you who are unfamiliar with Meow Wolf, it's a little bit hard to describe, uh, maybe intentionally so, but they are known for their really immersive, interactive art installations and experiences that are fantastical and otherworldly. And what started as a very DIY artist collective is now one of the world's most innovative companies, according to Fast Company. Um, They have a permanent location in Santa Fe and they just opened their second permanent installation in Las Vegas. So I'm really excited to hear uh, Katie talk a little in her own words about Meow Wolf. But I'll also let you in on a secret that Amanda and I just We watched the documentary of Meow Wolf's origin story. (laughs) Um, So that's fresh in our minds. And um, it's really amazing. If you haven't checked it out, I would recommend to to everybody to watch it. But I think this is going to be a great conversation, especially for those artists out there that um, maybe don't feel welcomed by galleries and museums about what it looks like to go a less conventional route and to really build your own infrastructure and put yourself into positions of unknown. Um, so I just thank you all for redefining what's possible for so many artists out there. And um, again, we're just really excited to talk with you.
2: <laughs> I'm honored to talk to you. <laughs> uh,
1: so I am curious, how, how do you describe Meow Wolf to, to people that you've never met or people that are unfamiliar with um, what it is that you all do?
2: Mm, well, kind of true to true to the difficulty of describing it. That description changes every time. And kind of depending on who I'm describing it to, also. Um, it is very essential that you have to experience it to really know what it is. But if you were not going to, I would probably try and tell you that it's like a fully explorable art installation movie set Dream world, playground, massive immersive multimedia installation. <laughs> the words change every time, but I, sometimes I think it changes every time I go in there. So it is—it is a thing with a life of its own.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting. In the um, the documentary that we just watched, it it sounded almost as if Meow Wolf was its own entity or being that you all were sort of vehicles for like it had its sort of own motivations and so that that was interesting to me how that you described it as this kind of a beast that you know takes on a lot of different lives and forms
2: yeah definitely it's uh it definitely has its own motivations (laughs) that part of the time seem like a accumulation of all of our motivations and the rest of the time seems like something that we're battling and it's, you know, more than just those of us who are technically part of it, too. You know, it can kind of get on a life of its own in terms of how it sort of starts to spiral out into the world as well. So there's there's a term, egregore, which refers to, like, kind of a, a being that exists because people believe in it, um, or that it. But like a conscious entity that is brought into being by a group of people's belief. And it's sort of a perfect... Kind of intimidating term for that beast that meow wolf is.
1: <laughs> yeah, I love that. Um, I would love to go back in time a little bit and just hear a little bit about your own origin story. I know you studied at RISD and moved out to Santa Fe. It sounds like in the early days of meow wolf, got involved with it um, pretty soon after, and. I'm sure we'll get into all of that, but um, would just love to hear a little bit about your own creative background and uh, maybe what brought you out west, and you know what what your vision for your own life and career as an artist looked like at that point.
2: Well, I've I've always been an artist of some kind, like as long as I can remember. And after college, I just wanted to go anywhere, really, try different places. Because I grew up in the Midwest, I grew up in Kansas, and Was very scared to go far away to Rhode Island. And then once I'd managed that, I was like, oh man, I could go like anywhere in the country, probably. (laughs) Um, But none of my friends from college wanted to go anywhere. Um, They, a lot of them were from the Northeast and they wanted to stay there. And so I went home for a year and was painting murals, which I'd been doing for a couple of years, uh, trying to, as much as I could do them, do as immersive of murals as people would let me do like painting on light switches and doors and things. But a friend finally wanted to go to Santa Fe, and I was like, I'd never been to the Southwest at all. I never even really thought about moving to the Southwest. I was wanting to go to the Northwest, but I didn't really care. I was just like anywhere. I need to not live in like my parents' spare room anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So just sight unseen, moved to santa fe in 2007 figuring that i would stay for a year and then go all around the country spending a year in all different parts of the country that was 2007 though and mm. <laughs> so nearly 14 years later i am i love santa fe i definitely i'm looking forward to going back there after the denver project is open but i, I probably wouldn't have stayed in santa fe if it weren't for Meow Wolf. Santa Fe is really wonderful, really beautiful, and really peaceful, and a little too peaceful for most early 20-somethings, which is changing a little, in part because of Meow Wolf. But um, I had a really hard time making friends when I first moved there. I mean, I would have had a hard time making friends no matter if it was sleepy or not, but um, not, a, not an easy place for a shy artist to meet people. But, I did eventually through through jobs make some friends, and then bizarrely ran into a high school friend in one of their living rooms. Like he just he had known them before, and he walked into their living room, and I hadn't seen him in like four years. And it was one of those like dream sequence things where like your face kind of like pixelates into reality, and you're like, why are you here? What are you? You're not here. And he had actually just come from his first ever Meow Wolf meeting, like, just then. Uh, And I had heard of Meow Wolf. I had actually been to one show, but I had mostly been too scared to go, too shy to go. Um, But he invited me to come over. Like, you know, he'd just gone to his first meeting, but he was like, yeah, come over. You can, like, check it, as though it was, like, his. (laughs) Because that's very much what Meow Wolf is and was then in particular, just. It, is, it belongs to those who show up. And I literally put on a dress as though I was going to a job interview to go to like a dirt floored warehouse. And they were like, yeah, there's nothing in that corner. And I was like, yes, I, there's plenty of scraps of drywall. I can make my own corner. And um, that was for uh, the second really like many person installation, the third Meow Wolf installation. Uh, Called horror, which was a take on a haunted house. Um, I brought a lot of dirt in from the outside and made a dirt floor, and like made some monkeys to put in the corners, and painted a dripping mural on like chunks of drywall and pizza boards from next door, which I didn't think about until later. I'm allergic to gluten, and they were like coated in flour. But it was it was just a ramshackle rat's nest, amazing playground. Like you you show up and do whatever you want if you can like find any electrical and like you know go home and get a light bulb sort of thing but it was it was wonderful it was super freeing and it was perfectly open door like literally I don't know if we even had locks you know so I just never left and a lot of those of us who really never left um, since the beginning since near the beginning that was uh, for me that was September 2008, and Meow started in February 2008. There are a lot of us who are still involved, that were involved from the very early days, and you just kept showing up and making things. And if you were there, you helped make decisions. And if you helped make decisions a lot, you probably got looked to to make more decisions. And eventually, we like tried a few different structures and learned a few things, especially about like, oh, if we, if we put a donation box out, maybe we'll get 25 bucks. If we sit at the door and ask for donations, we might get like 300 bucks, you know, like learning about Mm -hmm. ticket sales and learning about the basics. Not really sure where to go from there. (laughs)
1: Yeah. I think, I mean, what I love about hearing about these early days of Meow Wolf is that it sounds like, so many art scenes in so many different places and cities around the country, and I think that will resonate with a lot of people. Um, Amanda and I went to art school in Baltimore, and it reminds me so much of this place called the Annex, which I haven't been to in
0: years. I don't know, Amanda, if you're still... Um, I don't know. I think Annex is still there. I, I know at least Copycat is. Like, there were definitely artist warehouse spaces where it was just sort of no rules, everyone is down to make whatever as long as you figure out how to make it yourself and take care of it.
1: Yeah, and so I'm really fascinated by how it seemed like after, or at a certain point, or maybe after the show... Um, that you all had at the Center for Contemporary Arts in Santa Fe. It seemed like there was this realization that this could become uh, something sustainable or become a sustainable business. So I was wondering if you could talk about that transition from a collective to an actual business.
2: Yeah, well, there was a lot that changed with the show at CCA because we were in someone else's space and we were building things that... It was it was just a lot more serious for a variety of reasons, and so, for example, we needed to not be inebriated in any way, <laughs> in any serious way, while you know working in this comparatively professional space with all these power tools, and on something that needed to hold potentially lots of people in the air, <laughs> which I still kind of can't <laughs> believe they let us do. Um, but we had to take it a lot more seriously because uh, there was a lot more at risk just during the building process. And then that's really the main thing that once we were in a gallery setting. So it's very typical to sit at a door and ask for a donation. And that's where we were asking for $10 donations. we let anyone in. You didn't have to pay at all. It was just a donation. But almost everybody gave a donation. Um, there was one guy who had clearly been brought by his, his family. And he was like, yeah, we'll see. And, you know, one, it was one of the few people that didn't give something. And I was like, okay, guy, go ahead. You can go see the art for free. And he came back out, like, 30 minutes later, threw a 20 at us and went back in. <laughs> like, okay, I'm glad, it's, yes. glad it was <laughs> worth it. Um, but every time we try and say how much money we brought in at that show, it's, a completely different number the number that I remember was like 70,000 but I've heard over a hundred thousand I don't know it it varies widely and it also depends on how you're looking at it like all of the money that came in like in a given like we had a lot of music shows there and on you know you pay out a band at, that night and so if you counted all that money maybe it's higher but at the same time like Literally, our our future CEO was keeping money in a shoebox under his bed and in a P.O. box, the open-backed P.O. box thing. I don't know why, but that's one of the places he was keeping money because um, we didn't sure. even know what to do with tens of thousands of dollars. I mean, most of it we paid out to bands and to people who are working the door, and we ended up with, I don't know, twenty or thirty thousand dollars that we spent a huge amount of time trying to figure out what to do with. But we were all pretty stunned by the fact that we could bring in the sorts of numbers that we never thought we would ever see. (laughs) Um, And the budget for the show, it had been entirely on, it had been entirely built with volunteer labor, our own, and just like anybody who would come and help. Um, but the materials budget and, like, little marketing budget, I think, totaled out to between thirty and $40,000, which was huge, huge for us, like, 20 times more than anything we'd done before. So to be able to get people to give us that much money and then be able to turn that around into, with a big boat, a big boat sculpture, turn that around into... <laughs> depending on what number you you know, two to four times that, we were totally blown away. So we spent months, hours and hours at a time, circling how we should organize and what a business should look like and who should be in charge of anything. And this was back when all we were going to do was like, you know, write down a business plan that probably said almost nothing real and, like, open a bank account. And we still spent months talking about the, like, philosophical aspects of it. So that was in 2011. And after that, we did a variety of shows around the country for, I think, the next biggest budget we had was maybe $14,000. And we were using, you know, like, tax refunds and garage sales and whatever, to even get to that sort of number. And we really just were running out of steam. It was, we were all still, most of us were either still working whatever non-career related jobs, like I was in food delivery for years, just sort of to get by long enough to get back to making things. Or people were, you know, trying to go to grad school, trying to find something else for themselves, but, again, Santa Fe is small and not a lot for a twenty-something to start a career in almost anything in the arts, really. So we started dreaming about making something permanent that could use what we learned business-wise, or at least what we learned people might be willing to pay, you know, a whole ten (laughs) dollars with the due return. with the boat show (laughs) and all of the different things we learned about just building and art making over the years and a little bit of like relationships that we made through all these different galleries and we talked to all sorts of different groups trying to find something for years. We did a show in 2013 in San Antonio in this giant abandoned building pretty much and as part of a festival that they have there I'm forgetting the name of the festival unfortunately a light art festival that they do there we're like oh this building's huge and abandoned what if we could take this building which would have been terrible it was like falling apart full of water in the bottom like but you know we had lots and thousands of people came through our exhibit that single night for that show so we had relationships with the city of san antonio all of a sudden and we're trying to like our 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 later ceo was like trying to find relationships and buildings kind of anywhere that he could get someone to pay attention um and we looked at a few places in santa fe because santa fe is obviously close to all of our hearts in many ways a bunch of us grew up in santa fe and the rest of us are transplants there but None of the buildings we found ever felt right. Well, maybe they felt right to other people, but they never felt right to me, and they all fell through anyway. They always just made me more anxious than anything else. And then in the spring of 2014, the bowling alley, Somebody Vince went to go see the bowling alley, um, or it, be, it came on the market, I'm not really sure. It had been closed for seven years already. It was just a hole in the ground. It didn't have any lanes. It was just sort of a falling apart thing that actually cost less than the price of the land that it was on because it was such a blight and but it still was listed at the time it didn't sell for this but it was listed at the time for something like between six and eight hundred thousand dollars for a giant building on like a couple acres in the like there's no way anything would sell for that in santa fe now But we're like, we can find, there must be somebody in the world, right? Like, we could do, what, do people do Kickstarters for that kind of money? Like, (laughs) there must be a way, this building's so perfect. And we also very naively were like, and, I don't know, maybe, maybe like $300,000 to fix it up. (laughs) Like, I don't know, I don't know where the hell we got that number. It was wrong by, like, tenfold. Um... But it just felt really right. It was already something that was kind of a whole culturally because it had been a bowling alley. It had been a place that people go. Um, not very many people for... Like, I had gone there myself all the time in, like, 2008, right up until it closed. And routinely, my group of people would be the only ones there. So it just felt perfect to try and bring something that people could do back to this place and it was just weird as hell which is always helpful like you know filthy still smells like beer seven years later um neon carpet and red, white and blue tile yeah and like this bizarre purple and green and orange um kind of like heartbeat monitor mural with like a giant Bud Light yes. vinyl on it, and yes. some really heinous dead pigeons. And we were like, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> but it was 30,000 square feet. It was bigger than anything we'd even seen in Santa Fe. So again, we we thought we knew some things about business, in that we realized that you could do it. Um, But we didn't really know anything, and so two of the founders, Sean and Vince, attended, if that's the right word, a creative incubator program called Creative Startups that helped them write the business plan and provided some mentors and also access to potential angel investors. And we won. We won a $25,000 loan, was the the winnings, which we did not realize was a loan at first. Uh-huh. Um, and the first thing we did was six of us quit our jobs to start this thing, and we went to Disneyland because most, half of us had never been. <laughs> we're like, okay, we're gonna, have, we're gonna have to make like big things permanently. like.
1: Let's go it's a research trip <laughs> obviously
2: yeah it really was it was like oh wow these rocks are made of concrete how interesting <laughs> um and it was you know like a bonding I trip. would have
0: loved to have seen you guys there at Disney because everyone's like looking at all the rides and you're like how is this structure made? oh yeah like oh okay I can see from underneath
2: <laughs> exactly it was I have a very clear memory of Yeah, a lot of people just, like, walking quickly through this relatively empty space, and we're, like, putting our hands on this, like, blank, (laughs) kind of, like, cliff, this fake cliff, being like, oh, (laughs) I see. (laughs) Yes. But that was December of 2014, and we had incorporated long before, technically the second time, we'd had a business license for... A really long time in order to, like, you know, throw music shows and have a bank account. Um, so since that business license had Meow Wolf on it, Sean was worried that uh, we wouldn't legally be able to call ourselves Meow Wolf before dissolving that other business. But we had still had a bank account, so he got us a new business license with the name VCMSE Art City LLC. <laughs> <It's like> really <laughs> messy, like. We had credit cards that said that, and that's just all of our initials. Um, Really unhelpful.
0: (laughs) I feel like that's kind of standard, though. Yeah. I know my husband's band has like a couple different ones, and there's like one for shows, one for touring, one for, you know, merch and whatever, and they're, they're all really strange names. Exactly. But I guess whatever keeps it organized.
2: Yeah, organized. <laughs>
0: Quote, unquote.
2: I mean, we didn't have an accountant until we were almost... We, no, we never had an accountant. Like, during the entire build of the house, this like our our CEO doubled as our accountant, and I think we ended up with a... I don't know if he was... He had a title besides... Just, like Was he the finance director or something? But, like, a month before opening. Like, we really were just... Like, I, my title is art director, which is bizarre because arguably we're all art directing. Um, I keep learning new titles of people who have an entire job that is like a fraction of what was my job and a variety of other people's jobs. Like, we had, as is true with any <laughs> small business, um, you know, you're just doing all of the jobs. But as, you know, someone who stopped taking math early in high school, and they were like, you're going to have to keep taking math. And I was like, I'm not going to, though. And they are like, you probably should, or you're not going to get into the local college. I was like, that's okay. I can't do this anymore. And I ended up managing a, you know, $120,000 budget with a very brightly colored Google sheet. It worked, (laughs) but it... I'm very glad to not have to manage budgets anymore.
1: <laughs> yeah, it just, I mean, I love hearing this story because I, I think it's so relatable too in that you are learning so much as you go along. And I think at every stage in the process, you, you're having to acquire new skills. And I'm, I'm really interested in in that transition of suddenly having to take what were these temporary makeshift installations and then build them prepare to build them for a permanent space to code and working with architects and with project management and contractors and engineers and all these things. And you've been talking a little bit about this already, but what what were some of the, maybe the biggest learning curves or things that you were having to learn along the way as, as your own role within Meow Wolf was evolving?
2: I mean, we didn't know the term project manager until after we opened the house. Like, it's like, We'd, oh, that's that thing we've been just,
1: doing this whole time.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like we, we were just winging it. We were completely making it up because none of us had any business experience or project management experience of any kind. So the transition to building permanent things was extremely difficult. Was it like a, there was always something every week, every day, multiple times a day, there'd be something that we couldn't do which is still true. (laughs) This has not gone away. Um, It's just scaled up. And we keep thinking like, oh, next time we'll know. But our ambitions have yet to uh, hang out at a place that we already know what we're doing. So we are constantly having to level up in ways that are piles of new limitations. Um, I like to think of it as, like, an infinitely generating Venn diagram. Like, the little center, the intersection in the middle is getting, like, infinitely smaller and smaller, and, like, a new parameter shows up and just, like, crowds the rest around, like a fractal of problems. But, I mean, you get used to some of it. Like, the things on the house that we had to learn, like, the code around sprinklers... You know, I know way more about sprinkler code than I ever would have dreamed was possible to know, much less that I would know. Um, And I only know a fraction of it compared to a lot of the people on our team now. And the number of ideas that got killed simply because of sprinkler code, because we, Uh. one, we couldn't afford two layers of sprinklers to sprinkle above and below a ceiling, so we just couldn't do the project at all or just proximity and shapes of holes between things. And and that's just sprinklers. Like, there are so many, so many rules, most of which have very good reasons behind them that we had never had to even think about before. And uh, another another thing that came up, thankfully, as early as it did, was fireproofing. The aspect of fire code around fireproof materials we had never heard of before. We didn't know it was even. We didn't know there were fireproofed or fireproofing materials, and then we found out that everything was going to have to be fireproofed. And there were a number of projects that almost got scrapped after months and months, hundreds and hundreds of hundreds of hours of work, because we just didn't know. You know, Google wasn't good enough. for solving these problems. Like, the um, canopy, the the leaf canopy in the forest and the exhibit in Santa Fe is all made out of Tyvek because it was cheap and relatively durable and something that with a huge amount of trial and error we could cut on our laser cutter. But Tyvek is, one of the good things about it, thus one of the circles in the Venn diagram, is that it's not really absorbent. It's relatively waterproof it's not but it's water resistant but what that means is it also will would not absorb a fireproofing material so there was a minute there where i thought thousands of hours of work were going to just be unusable and i shut down with that one i was just like i remember sitting across the desk from sean who's telling me this and just like my brain turned off and he's like, we're going to have to fix this. And I was like, I'm busy. I'm in the middle of something. I don't know what these... I don't know. He was like, we're going to have to do something about this. And I was like, we are, <laughs> like, practically, like, back out of the office. And office, which was, like, I think some hollow core doors leaned on something. Um, but he managed to find a company from Southern California whose, like, deal would be to go around to things like Santa's Villages or whatever that similarly would be like, oh, no, we have to fireproof everything? We're opening an hour ago. And these people would come in and just, like, hose things down with this, like, mineral solution and be like, you're good. <laughs> so, <laughs> they, oh, my God. They came out and, like, cut off little test pieces of a bunch of different things, and they, like, formulated special products just to, like, spray on everything. <laughs> Oh my God. And at the time, it was like $20,000. And we were just like, where the hell are we going to get another $20,000? Like, when we started, we thought that our total project budget, like, and we thought this was completely crazy, but we thought our total project budget was going to be something like $300,000. <laughs> and that. At the very beginning, that very quickly went up to like six or eight hundred thousand, and we were like, okay, that's really big, but maybe. And I, I mentioned before, like, the building cost I think the building ended up costing like eight, eight fifty. Um, when Mad Lib, that is life, uh, George R. R. Martin became our landlord and bought the building. Um, and we told him that it would cost three hundred thousand dollars, and he laughed at us because he was like, why would it only cost three hundred thousand dollars to fix the building? we um, were like, okay, it'll only cost six hundred thousand dollars, and all in the building part, including the the purchase and uh, renovation of the building, cost three million dollars, and the exhibit part, the entire build, all of the all of the contractor stuff, uh, all the like walls, electrical, and all of the art stuff, and all of our pay to do so cost uh, three million dollars. So. Wow. Not exactly $600,000. Um, <laughs> just a little more. But the way that we raised that money was pretty much just Vince going out and finding people in mostly $25,000 increments to invest in this thing. Um, and even that, like finding out the limitations around who's allowed to do that. You know, the securities laws that don't let, doesn't let your grandma who has thirty five thousand dollars in a savings account, give you twenty five thousand, it's against the law. She has to have over a million in personal worth, personal net worth, or make two hundred thousand dollars a year in order to invest in the way that we were raising money. Oh. I don't I don't really understand it all. Wow. Um, so yeah, Vince was just going out and raising money bit by bit by bit by bit there were a couple people that invested like seventy-five or or $100,000 and that was like, whew, we've got it for like, we've got this for a month now at least. Um, there were a bunch of times where we were like, we are not going to have payroll on Tuesday. Most of the time, we didn't need to bring that to the team, but there were a couple of times that we did and we told people like, we don't expect you to keep working not knowing if we will be able to pay you next paycheck. So like, If you need to stop working with us until we can pay you again, we will wait until we can pay you again. And no one left for those reasons. Like, almost no one left the project at all. But um, I don't think... Like, it was beautiful. Like, it was really scary to go to this whole group of people who are making almost nothing anyway, making more than we'd ever paid anyone. Like, we were, like... It was very exciting that we were able to pay pay people, but it was still like at this point like nothing like it's not a salary, but people were so dedicated to the thing and had such belief in it, and such belief and even the fact that money would show up somehow and it always did, like up to the up to like opening day, we're like fundraising, these like little bits by little bits. And Vince would be like, come on, everybody knows somebody with $25,000. And we were like, no, (laughs) not everyone does. Like, I don't know anyone who could invest. I'm sorry. But he somehow found many, many people who could.
1: Yeah, I'm so curious to know what the mental dialogue was during those moments because I think every artist has... Experienced this on some level, certainly not to the same scale or where the stakes are as high as when you all were working, you know, with this massive team. And I just think about that, you know, that ambiguity and not, you know, not knowing if things are going to work out and how how challenging that can be, um, just internally. And so. I think what is so remarkable about the successes and you know the story um, of Meow Wolf is just the the sheer improbability of George R R Martin funding this build out and renovation for nearly 2 million dollars and I just I mean that you all have been able to do so much on such a massive scale and so I'm just wondering how, what was that internal dialogue or how did you sort of, you know, convince yourselves, even in those moments where you realized you had to fireproof something that took you a thousand hours, um, you know, how to, how to keep moving forward um, despite the uncertainty?
2: Well, I think I know that everyone's answer would be very different, which in itself is actually pretty important to the process because then there's no one person to lose faith. There are just too many people rolling along. That if you have a day or a week or a month of lost faith, everyone else is still rolling along. Um, The collective process is really like, I cannot emphasize enough how important it is, Um, not just to, you know, for strengths and weaknesses of each person, but that momentum is. That, that momentum that is that thing that has a life of its own is really driven by the collective process. Driven by that collective faith. But like uncertainty and ambiguity are really just core to the thing and do not ever go away.
0: Yeah.
2: Ever. Um, like honestly when the pandemic began and people were like, oh, my God, what if, what if restaurants don't open next week? Or like, what if I lose my job? What? Oh, my God, what if I lose my job? And I was like, yeah, that's always true. You could always lose your job all of the time like this is very scary I don't want to remotely minimize how scary that was and how scary it remains but I was really struck by like oh not everybody lives in a state of complete uncertainty all of the time (laughs) I just know everything could go away at any minute I don't think it will but I know it could and that combination of I don't think it will I actually have never thought that it would fail I've had blips of sort of realizing that and being like, oh, my God, what if it did? But like for a moment, it's probably naive, but it's really been a just sort of unthinking assumption that it will work. In building the house, it was just going to work. When when I went blank because I didn't know how we were going to be able to use the leaves, I had to just walk away because I didn't know how it was going to work. And I didn't have a first step of figuring out how it was gonna work. So I had to just go do something else that I that was gonna work in that moment. But it always has to work. So so what are you gonna do? You know? Like if it's not gonna work, then what well will, I guess. There are all sorts of things that didn't work out the way that we wanted them to, but that was like a constant. That was a constant in like making things out of garbage as well. Like, oh, we don't have enough garbage let's <laughs> like, go get different garbage we're not going to get matching garbage so how do we make this new garbage work with this old garbage <laughs> just a kind of constant rolling with it a perfectly constant rolling with it that is over the that over the years has become a arguably not always healthy ability to be very comfortable with ambiguity very very comfortable with change And we are still in that place. We are absolutely still in that place. We are not going to be leaving that place anytime soon. We have changed a lot over the last six months, year, two years. But that has always been the case. In the beginning of Meow Wolf, we changed dramatically every few months, much less every year or so. And now we're very big with a lot of people who rely on us in larger and greater degrees in, you know, physical, monetary and psychological ways. So it matters a lot more when we change now. It affects a lot more people. But it also is why it's essential that we keep changing in order to try and fix the things that don't work yet. <laughs> to find some new garbage to tape to the old garbage that doesn't match. <laughs> yeah, I feel
0: like so much of the artist spirit I mean this is very relatable. Um like so much of the artist spirit is about having to adapt to things that are just gonna go they'll work or they're they they will not work you won't know why you'll put tons and tons of energy into a piece and be like I have this vision it's going to happen and it is not happening the way you envision it so you got to figure out a way to work work through it and work around it I I relate to that very much in definitely different scales and like I'm curious how that is collectively adapting when there are so many people involved and like so many perspectives involved. And like, how do you, how do you function as this uh, creative collective with this sort of, I don't know, almost like a, like a co-op vibe where everyone owns a part of it and everyone sort of is participating in, in the creating process. Um, I'm always very curious about that because I definitely, aside from the podcast I create in a very solo Experience, so I always um, want to know how how people are collaborating reasonably, or or in a, in ways where everyone feels like satisfied, or does everyone feel satisfied? I don't
2: know. Um, no, probably not. The, I don't
0: even know if that's a question, but
2: oh no, it's a very very important question. It's like the question, and it is one that we have absolutely not solved for because. Before, when we were a collective, when we were, you know, volunteer-based, you show up and you kind of do what you want and you try not to step on toes as you do it, but we learned through a variety of physical structures, like uh, show compositions, the best ways to, the best way for us to make things that... Um, didn't really step on each other's toes and let us do something together was to make something compartmentalized, which still obviously very much shows up in in our work now, where you have this labyrinthine thing with many different highly contrasting spaces. We learned that in an effort to work together with many different brains and egos and aesthetics and still do something together. But, you know, we are always trying new structures and at the moment we are in a more of a production shop structure very collaborative tons of collaborative projects all really kind of depending on the team different um, communication and collaborative structures and we have not figured out the like methods for communication or properly looping in the right people at the right time or making making sure that the right people get all the right information or even, you know, able to share internally projects with other people who aren't on the project to learn what other people are doing or hear about the process of a, of a new project as it's being built, not being built but as it's being like figured out like what we might do how we include sometimes hundreds of people in a way that is satisfactory without simply making is kind of a giant collage with with no real through line to it. We have not figured out yet. We're, we're working on Yeah, every project, it depends on who's leading it, and it depends on who's participating, <laughs> and the, like, atmosphere, the, like, political atmosphere at the time, and how people are feeling. And mm-hmm. It is always changing. Even a single project has probably gone through a bunch of different collaborative structures because now our projects take so long because they're so big so i don't have an answer i have very high hopes that we are on the horizon of some kind of shift in the structures that people use at all to organize themselves shift away from the organizational charts and political hierarchies and fiefdoms or whatever that we all are trying to come from and imagine a new world out of. It's hard to, you know, try and be like, okay, we're going to be a business now and not inadvertently fall into some undesirable structure in some manner, especially once you get beyond a number of people that can just talk to each other every day. So I feel like there must be some way that a whole lot of creative people can just have a community together where they can all kind of share a balance of of support and freedom. But we sure haven't figured that out as a country or or any country. So, you know, a company (laughs) has not either. It's like a utopian ideal to find a way of really, like, comfortably collaborating and if you're also trying to innovate then you're probably not sitting anywhere for long enough to even build a structure that that works it's kind of a non-answer but
0: no we I know we love it I oh I see Nicole and I are both like ready to talk because we're we're both stoked we one of the reasons why we wanted to talk to you and talk to Meow Wolf and The first place is because we really agree with this ethos of living in an art world where there aren't any gatekeepers, there aren't anyone there aren't people telling you what art you can and cannot make and what is or isn't art. Like I think that we're hopefully societally having more of these conversations, but we keep having to have we keep needing to have more of these conversations because they're so it's so unnecessary that we continue to exist in these structures, but. How do we break out of them when they've been so deeply ingrained in our culture and in our society? It's like even thinking outside of the box requires a lot of thinking within the box just to get people to see the box. I
2: don't know. Totally. It's the ultimate creative problem solving to like solve, like to eliminate the question, you know, like I saw something on the Internet recently that made me feel a lot better that was essentially like the people that invented the light bulb did so by candlelight. The people that invented the engine rode horses probably for the majority of their lives. The people that changed the world existed in a world that they didn't create. Not on the internet but related quote that I think about almost every day when trying to solve some of this stuff is um, something like a person born into a world altered by an idea bears within them its imprint. Like, we are of capitalism. We are born in it, we live in it, we're soaked in it. And it is kind of absurd to fault ourselves for having to operate within it while we try and change it. We have to operate within it in order to eat, in order to, unfortunately, we have to have health insurance for now, until we figure out another way. Um, So we have to do it within the rules that exist in order to invent new ones. And I know that a lot of very idealistic, very progressive people like myself are so frustrated that we can't just change it. (laughs) But we have to come from here. We have to come from where we are yeah, I
1: think that's something a lot of artists can relate to, just that struggle with this the need for sustainability with this anti-capitalist mentality and the tension between, you know, where we are and where we want to be. And I think you you said that so beautifully. Um, and I, I feel like that is the like what we hope for for these conversations too, right? is to talk about not only, How artists are making it work today but what what are we working towards Um, and I I think you know you all have a really interesting philosophy and an example of that and so that definitely comes through and I guess related to that um, that idea of reimagining structures and hierarchies within the context of a business um, I was curious if you could share some examples of what that might look like uh, today within Meow Wolf, like maybe within a specific project. Um, is there anything that comes to mind where you feel like this kind of collective, you know, decision-making was, was working really well? Because um, obviously you need some structure or some kind of decision-making, but just, you know, the spirit of Meow Wolf being so uh, much about inclusion and creativity, um, are there any... Any examples that come to mind of, um, you know, at the scale, how you've been able to, to do that?
2: I mean, it's tough because I don't really have anything to compare it to. I haven't been in a different hierarchy other than ones that existed in Meow Wolf that aren't here <laughs> anymore. Like, I've never had a real job beyond, you know, it's a real job. I've never had a career job. I've never worked for a company bigger than an individual restaurant. So I don't really know much about how hierarchies can work. We haven't really found collaborative structures. We have put in place some very familiar, just like teams, and pretty normal looking hierarchy. But a lot of the collaborative element is in the actual decision making. And it kind of depends on Who's making the decision? How collaborative it's going to be? Who's making the decision, and which decision, and what day? And you know, I try very hard to include as many people as possible in whatever in in the given conversation. If they're in the conversation, try and make sure that you know the, for example, make sure the artist who's leading the project or whose idea initially was is in the room and that really, as a creative director, I'm trying to support what, getting them to speak their idea and get them to answer. Because a lot of people, since I'm the creative director, default to asking me, even if the artist is in the room, like what color to paint a thing, whatever. I'm like, well, why don't we ask? (laughs) Like, what do you, what color do you want it to be? So it's really, we do not have a structure that requires that. We have a culture that desires that, but um, there have definitely been projects that have been frustrating people because um, someone has either decided to or needed to be a lot more directorial for that project. And there have been projects where, like, There's no creative leadership, really. I've got projects that I'm the creative director on that I haven't gotten an update on in months. (laughs) People are making it like they're doing super cool stuff. I don't really need to check in because I know that the artist is being listened to, and that's what's important to me there. And there are projects that I have control over. They're more likely projects where we're working with outside vendors who are building stuff for us but they're also not necessarily looking for collaboration. They're like very surprised when we want them to be, when we ask them their opinion creatively, depending on the vendor. Um, there are, we work with lots of creative vendors as well where we do collaborate with them. Um, so every instance is different and we have talked at length about how to codify a collaborative process but we have not really gotten very far <laughs> in part because we are working so hard on the projects themselves that trying to work on the process while you're working on the thing is extra hard and it's also harder to agree on than is this thing cool or not like you know the the conversation like a big part of what would make a, a process truly collaborative is to also collaborate in the building of it, and that is a million times harder than collaborating on building an object. So, we are always working on that, and we have done some kind of circles. We've we've tried some things and moved away from them, and then gotten back to them, and we have a lot still to figure out. And I'm not sure what else to say, so I guess I'm done answering the questions. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting because um, I feel like a lot of what you're talking about too relies on this, um, or I guess having some comfort level with with ambiguity, and I, maybe this is a little bit easier for creative people. But just you know what you're describing, having you know not entirely fixed job descriptions or titles or you know, even really defined roles and involving people in the creative process, having, you know, maybe loosely defined teams, but then inviting a vendor to contribute uh, creatively, you know, it's like you need to have this shared expectation and spirit of collaboration. And, and and again, being able to to navigate ambiguity. I just think this year has also been like a real test of that, um, where, you know, so many uh, people's job job descriptions have have shifted completely, or the nature of their roles have totally uh, you know been turned upside down, and so I think that process seems a lot more kind of familiar to you all. Just again, related to what you were saying about the continual um, things are always changing, so it just seems like that's kind of built into the way that Mia Wolf has been growing over time, but maybe harder to you know, I- implement in a more standard, um, I don't know, corporate structure or something where, you know, there is an expectation that you're going to come in with a really clearly defined role and, you know, just sort of do, do your job. Um, so it's, yeah, it's really interesting to think about.
2: Yeah, the the different roles is, or the, like, job descriptions is something that it's actually been quite a issue, like trying to get job descriptions that fit people's roles at the same time as trying to keep from, pigeonholing people and um, not letting them feel like they can do a wider variety of things. I wouldn't even really know how to describe my job, but I also have a lot of control over that, like over what I think I should do. I think people, it's a lot more important to have a job description if someone else is giving it to you, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And I really understand that, that frustration when... The person who is who has the control to tell you what your job is can't. It's kind. Of, it's pretty unfair, and that that's that's been an issue for us because you know we bring in new people to help and we like learn about the existence of entire, entire probably thousands of people out there who all have the same job title none of us had ever heard of before and we're like oh that's kind of like these three different jobs that we had like maybe if we scoot like this person can help all these people and then like all those people are like but wait that's my job and it's just it's just always endlessly complicated
1: yeah I wanted to ask um and I guess whether uh yeah, on a personal level or even zooming out to the the collective at large, um, how how do you feel about replicating the business model of Meow Wolf in different locations while maintaining this original spirit of, you know, everything being uh, unique? And and if there what kinds of differences have there been between the first permanent installation and, and the second and third?
2: Well, the first, second and third installations are all completely different. Um, There are a couple of projects that we have opted to try and do like a 2.0 of, make an upgraded or, you know, like any artist, really. Like, I liked that yellow island I painted, but it wasn't big enough, whatever. But other than that, like, they're completely different. They have totally different stories, totally different structures and layouts, and and everything in in them is unique to them. That won't always be the case. We will do things in the future that are taking essentially the same projects and um, or some of the same projects and replicating them and having everything else be new. Which, you know, is obviously has it's the, it's it's complicated, but at the same time there are so many people that want to do projects with us and. We are either going to very slowly, very slowly make a few unique ones and have a very limited number of opportunities to do projects with us, or we very slowly do a few unique ones and do a v- wide variety of other things, including some duplication, in order to have more opportunities for more artists to work with us, as well as obviously more opportunities for people to visit a, you know, without having to travel a really long ways, and more jobs. Like We just hired, I don't know how many people to run the Vegas exhibit. Um, I think something like 130 people. And that, especially right now, that is a lot of jobs. (laughs) It's scary and amazing to be able to give people an opportunity to make money doing something that they don't hate. (laughs) They probably don't hate it's a lot more pressure because if you if you love your job and especially if you think you should love your job and then it's hard or unpleasant which is common because mm-hmm. this is a huge learning process and it is we're building things we are really you know reaching for the stars and landing on the moon it is really hard and uncomfortable and especially all the things I was talking about, like trying to figure out how to collaborate, like it's not always happy. And that's so much worse when it's your dream job, when it's, your, when it's so much more associated with yourself. You know, if you work at a job that you don't associate yourself with, if, if you are like me and you are a terrible waitress and you hate waitressing, it doesn't hurt your feelings the same way as if you are doing your dream job And you go through a phase of it being really unpleasant as like every artist knows that, but like to then have it also be like, people are like, Oh, you're living the dream. You've made it. You, you must, that must be the best job ever. And you're like, you don't know. (laughs) Actually
0: it hurts. Yes. (laughs) I always say like, I'm actually the worst boss I've ever had. I am the worst. (laughs) I'm a terrible boss. And yeah, when it, when it's good, it's really good. But when it's hard, you're like, well, I guess I just have to deal with me now. (laughs) (laughs) And I, I thought this would be easier. But you know, that's, that's life. Even even if you love something so much, or you love someone so much, like there are going to be unpleasant phases. And there are going to be phases where it really feels like work and phases where you're like, I'm so tired. I don't want to do any of this. But then there are those times where you're like, I am so fucking lucky to be able to do this. Yeah. And you just try to remember those in the lows, I suppose.
2: Absolutely. And we somehow got there from you were asking about making more of them and the weirdness of making more of them. I don't remember if I, actually, if I fully answered that question or not. Sorry, I, I pulled us away from it. <laughs>
0: Yeah, sure. no,
1: I think you did. I was curious, um, I think primarily how how meow wolf is growing and evolving now at this point, which maybe um, maybe that's a better question is, you know, as, as it continues to grow. And something that I guess we've kind of touched on, but haven't really brought up too much either is just the impact of this last year. Um, surely there have been kind of short term consequences to the pandemic, but um, has it Resulted in any long-term shifts as far as how you're thinking about the future of Meow Wolf, or you know, how how are you all thinking long-term currently about um, how it's growing?
2: This year is, you know, as true to almost everyone's experience. This year sucked. The last year sucked a lot. Other than the simple things of like we're supposed to be working collaboratively, and for a long time we're all completely alone. And then all the problems of collaboration are a hell of a lot harder when you can't even, like, be in the same building, much less the joys of collaborations are a lot harder to access. But um, much, much worse than that, we had huge layoffs in the beginning of the year, in the spring. Um, Our first, not our first layoffs, but our first ever (laughs) huge layoffs. And it was, heartbreaking isn't, isn't strong enough of a word. Like, the most the worst there have been some miserable times in meowulf and that was above and away hundredfold worse than it was like the most failed i've ever felt was (laughs) that day and the following months of i still don't feel like i've not failed those people (laughs) and some of them a, a few of them have You know, we've managed to find space for them again. But, like, we're still a much smaller company than we were um, a year ago. And that, that kind of trauma doesn't go away. You know, we're supposed to be this collaborative family. And then, you know, business comes crashing through, forces that kind of decision making. It was disastrous. So we're not healed from that. We have done a lot of, I mean, just like time alone, but has has made some of that pain easier. But that is still huge; it still has a huge impact on on us now. And I don't know how that will resolve yet. Other than as with many things of this last year, I think it has forced us to look at ourselves. In some ways that maybe we could have kind of treaded water and kept avoiding for a little while. So hopefully, like I'm kind of speaking of water. Just I'm still pretty very underwater with Denver. I'm super focused on just trying to work on on this thing. Um, but a lot of people just finished a project, and many of them will be coming here. But hopefully over the next few months, and definitely once Denver is open, we're going to have more of an opportunity to really, like, look at ourselves and be like, okay, if we kind of got too big to where we couldn't, there, there is, like, too, it's too complicated to even try and boil down, but, like, we don't want that to happen again, so, you know, obviously we can't control a pandemic, but we also not want to be one of the companies one of the many 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 like production companies out there that just grows when there's a project lays everybody off when it's done we want to do something else yeah. so like how do we how do we do that how do we become something else at the same time as not simply having a very insular like this is our team and you know we don't have many opportunities for other people either it's quite a conundrum that's internally internally is much more complicated than externally externally nothing's really changing. Like, you know, the house in Santa Fe is still closed and will be until, you know, the the governor lets us open it and that's fine. The exhibit in Vegas is open at 25% and selling out and it's being cleaned constantly and it's not a whole lot different than a real grocery store (laughs) in terms of like, it's crowdedness or people touching things or whatever. The pandemic isn't gonna last forever. It's, you know, there are all sorts of different studies about whether or not it's gonna actually fully go away. But like, you know, we live with the flu every year too. Like the, it's not just like, we aren't going to have to be in pandemic rules for the rest of our lives. Like, yeah, I don't feel like I should really talk about my opinions about the, or like things I've read about the science of pandemics. I think that would be unwise. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, the human race has been through a lot of such things, and it can take a while, but we will come to another side of it, and people are going to be all the more thrilled to go do things and experience cultural institutions and find, you know, escapist narratives to immerse themselves in, so... You know, it's it's obviously a huge challenge at the moment, but it hasn't changed anything about our future plans other than, like, cleaning things even more. And honestly, the exhibits are better when they're not at 100% capacity. I don't like being in them when they're at 100% capacity. I don't like being in them when they're at 75% capacity. <laughs> so, like, if we can actually... It might be that we would never have limited it... <laughs> And if we can, no one, no, no one who's actually like running the money side of Meow Wolf would ever agree with me, but maybe (laughs) we'll find that a 50% capacity is like good enough and we don't actually have to let 100% capacity in, but that's probably not true.
0: I mean, selfishly, I love the sound of that because, like, you want more time to spend with the art. You want more space to be with the art. Yes. And I know Nicole and I look forward to, you know, when the world opens up again, being able to to come see come see the work in person.
2: Yeah, yeah, oh, I can't wait for that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, before we hopped on the call, we were like fantasizing about all these ideas of like, oh, we can go. T- We could take the podcast on tour. We can go do this. We can go do that. And we're just like, yeah, I I guess we'll be brainstorming.
2: (laughs) We'll just be thinking about it. And then it'll be the roaring 20s all over again. Exactly.
1: Yeah, I think we're all holding out um, hope for this creative resurgence that, you know, we can look forward to in the future. And I think those questions you're describing are ones that a lot of us are asking right now and a lot of organizations are asking is, you know, how to... Um, how to become adaptable and how to be sustainable or how to, you know, not only survive through this time, but to um, like, what do we need to reevaluate going forward, you know, based on what we've all just experienced and the challenges we faced. And so, yeah, I think those are just open questions we're all sort of working through and figuring out. Yeah.
2: And that we will not know till we get there.
1: Yeah, but I I just think back to what you had said earlier about, you know, we're, we're always in this process of transformation and making. And even when it sort of seems like things are quote unquote normal, like we're not in pandemic times, that, you know, is always the case, like things are always changing constantly all around us. And um, I think sometimes when we fall into our routines, it's easy to forget that. So um, also not meaning to, you know, diminish the incredibly hard year that it's been, but I think there is something, you know, really valuable potentially in having such a huge disruption to our lives and this kind of forced, forced reevaluation of, you know, why why have we been living or working in this way for so long? Like was that really the best way? Or yeah. could we come up with something different and I think yeah, that idea of the return to normalcy comes up a lot in conversation. We're not we're not trying to return to normal, right? We're trying to invent something new, and so it's been yeah, just really um, inspiring to talk with you about the origins of Meow Wolf, but um, more recently, you know how how you're thinking about this time and um, how how you all are continuing to grow and
2: evolve. Always. Finding new plateaus out of the fabric of the chaos.
0: (laughs) Yes. Um, Before we wrap it up, do you want to share where folks can find Meow Wolf and any news or announcements around the shows?
2: Yeah, I mean, our website is pretty robust, which is just meowwolf.com. And, you know, we've got all the socials. Pick one where... We're all over it. Um, I think our Instagram is like got two underscores in it or something. But I mean, if you search me the on on like any of the social medias, you'll find us. Any of them. We we got probably got a weird old Flickr account open still. <laughs> um, yes. I know we do actually. I recently had to try and find the password for it.
0: <laughs> I'll be following it right after this. <laughs> Oh, man, I think that means I have an old flicker still.
2: <laughs> I totally do, too.
0: Don't look it up, listeners. <laughs> I'm deleting it right now. <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah, thank you so much uh, for coming on to the show and for talking to us. It was such a pleasure. And, yeah, we really appreciate it.
2: Yeah. Thank you for having me. It was a fun conversation. Yeah.
0: Thanks for fulfilling our
1: dream of <laughs> interviewing the animals. Oh, God. I just think I love so much of what you talked about, the spirit of just working as if. Um, I know that's something that I'll return to and that even resonated in the documentary, just kind of believing that things are, are working out and so, you know, kind of living within that space. And I'm just amazed at how you've all been able to will a sustainable career path into existence by unapologetically making your work and creating other opportunities uh for artists along the way so i think this is um you know an inspiring story for every artist collective out there Um, so thanks again katie for taking the time thank you That's it for this episode of the Beyond the Studio podcast. You can find show notes, references, and a brief summary of the episode over at our website, beyondthe.studio. While you're there, be sure to sign up for our mailing list to find out about upcoming guests, special announcements, and podcast giveaways.